0: Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to talk a little bit about the nature of the church. I can't escape uh, this, this burden I have on me right now about the church becoming so Americanized, so culturalized. Um, if we're not careful, the church will cease to be the church because it'll become so secular, so marketed, so entertained, that people won't even know what to look for. And I'm, I'm of the strong conviction, having studied the Bible and continue to study the Bible regularly, that when you enter into one of God's holy houses of worship, anywhere on the planet, whether it's in the United States, the bush of Africa, Europe, whether it's in the Middle East or the southern countries of the world, there should be a distinction when you walk in. It should, you should know that this isn't like out there. You should know this isn't the world. You shouldn't you should walk into a church and think, is this a nightclub? Is this a bar? Is this dinner and a movie? There should be no confusion. Uh, you see the Lord begin to set this standard forward when he delivers the Israelites out of Egypt. And if you'll keep in mind the setting, that they have just come from being enslaved 400 years... And they were a static people living in Goshen, a giant suburb of Egypt uh, there on the Nile River Delta. And they were building houses of worship and treasure cities. And they were skilled artisans and they chiseled stone to make monuments and mausoleums for Egypt's great many a god that were half animal and half human in form, mostly speaking. And so They were used to houses of worship that were all around them, that you'd walk out of one into the other. They looked just just like the next building, except they maybe had columns chiseled from the stone of the proximity and the locations and some limestone and others sandstone. And so when God brings them into the wilderness and brings them to Mount Horeb, and God shows them that God doesn't live in a temple. He lives wherever he wants to. If he wants to light upon that mountain and set it on fire, that's what it'll do. And you can't stop him. (laughs) And I'm sure they thought, we never saw it like that in Egypt. We never saw fire like that. We never saw Osiris catch a whole mountain on fire. The best they could do was gold covered this and that. So he begins to command them to build him a tabernacle. And the tabernacle, if you're familiar with it, was just a bunch of rectangular curtains in the middle of no man's land. And you had an outer court that was demarcated by linen curtains, approximately 150 feet by 100 feet thereabout. And stark white linen curtains, and then within that was the tabernacle proper, which had the holy place and then the holy of holies. And it's interesting to note if you were walking through the desert and you saw this house of worship with its stark white. Sheets. It would have stood out from anything else, any other tent in the desert. You'd have seen it from a distance and say, in the desert, tan, brown of Sinai. You'd have seen this tabernacle and you'd wonder, what is this? What is this tent? In the wilderness, everybody has tents because they're all nomads. So this was, like every, this was like everybody else. It was a tent, but this was different from everybody's tent. It was demarcated. And once you approach it, you, you know your heart had to say, this was the culture of the time anyway, the stark white linen represented purity and holiness and the light of heaven. You had to say, here is a little pocket of the light of heaven. So as you approached it and you begin to see the nations surrounding it, just like it ought to be, God's people living around the house of God, with their life focused on the house of God, not some Facebook prophetess. That isn't church, not some televangelist, because that's not church either. When you see God lay his nation around in a wagon wheel type scenario, and in the center is this stark white tabernacle where God's presence fell regularly, night and day and night and day, you begin to see this pattern that God wanted his houses of worship different than anything else. And so it was like that for over 400 years. From the time of Moses, through the time of the Judges, So there's 400 years right there, through Saul, 40 years, David, 40 years. Now we're into 500 years till Solomon can build it. God dwelt in this stark white tabernacle for 500 years till everybody got all their shenanigans out of their system, all of their pride, all of their what have you, out of their system. And then God said, all right, now that we've got all this temple stuff and all these carnality out of your system, now we can build a temple. And even that was different than anything ever built, the most magnificent building in the ancient world that took seven years and over 100,000 men to complete it. That's a massive program, working around the clock. And if you didn't know, in those days, you didn't work a 40-hour work week. Or now if you're socialist, 25, and you have Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday off, and you Zoom from home. In those days, you really worked. And now you come to the church today. And what is the church today? Part coffee bar, part nightclub. You're not sure really when you left the world and entered into the church because it's a gradient. And you're not even really sure is there anything in this building holy? It's not like the tabernacle. We're approaching it from any direction in the desert. You could see the stark whiteness. And as you were to walk through the gates and you could only come in that tabernacle from one direction, you came in it through, through the way, as it was called. You didn't approach it any way you wanted to, you came towards God one prescribed way. Then there was this burnt offering the altar. You it met you were met with this giant burnt altar that was constantly burning animals to remind people you are sinful and before you go any further towards God, you got to be reminded of how sinful you are so you don't play patty cake and equal with this God. And then you go beyond that giant brazen altar and then there's this brazen laver of water to remind you, all right, you burn some sin off and I wash yourself too. And then, then you have the tabernacle itself, the tent, and then only the priests could go in there. It's not like that today. Now we have come as you are, stay as you are. Now we have churches lowering the standard. They, they would uh, request meetings with marketeers saying, what can we do to get more people to notice our church? What, can we sell some advert on the sides of our tabernacle sheets? Digital billboards maybe. <clears throat> What's trending? What's hashtagging? Let me look on Instagram. Let me see what the Instagram preacher is doing to draw his crowd. How come their church went from 50 to 500 in a year? Well, probably because they have cancer there. Today's pastor is not like Moses who goes into the presence of God and comes out glowing. Today's pastor goes on social media and comes out dingy. And therefore his church is steered by the social media algorithm, not led of the Holy Ghost, steered by trends, steered by hashtags, steered by 20-year-olds who don't know God at all, who barely remember who their parents were and don't even know how to make it to class on time. Why would you steer the greatest thing on planet Earth by a 20-year-old whose hair looks like a box of Crayola colors, and who looks like their face lost a fight with a tackle box. Why would you steer the church by those people who don't know God, who don't know holiness, who don't know purity, who don't know sacrifice, who just know how to hop online and help you check your email? You can help me check my email. And I'm not that stupid, by the way. But I can help you meet God. So we got an issue because the church doesn't even know what it's supposed to be anymore. I've covered recently, we've come through about 40 years of seeker-driven, purpose-driven, market-driven church. And so the church is polished, but the church is powerless. Maybe we call it, I don't know if this is a good sermon title, polished, but powerless. Marketed, but mighty in carnality. I have friends who, they don't really seek fathers in the faith. They seek the influencers of the kingdom. I'm talking ministry friends. When, I, when we talk, and usually I'm just a wall fly or a wall flower, and I'm just sitting there listening to them talk. And with great pride and joy, they talk about going to this conference, and I think, well, yeah, because that guy's church is 40,000 people. And they go to this conference, I think, well, yeah, because that guy's church is 28,000 people. And and they go to this conference, I think, well, yeah, because that guy's church has like 70 campuses, and they have 150,000 people. But none of it is, I I follow this man because he's walked with God for 60 years. And I follow this man because he started 500 churches across Asia. It's always polish, pizzazz, marketing. And so consequently, the people that are in that church, they don't realize they're just part of an experiment. They're part of the greatest market ploy ever unleashed on the church. They don't realize that they're just a product. They don't realize that they are a pastor's experiment in gimmicks. Now that should make you feel like a whore because you've been played. When when people think in terms of growth by 100 and 250 people, they're not thinking in terms of discipleship. They're thinking in terms of what can I do? How can I dial in my prescription, my formula here at this megaplex? How can I dial it in and follow the fads to get more people here? that pastor has lost touch with the Holy Spirit because the real pastors, the real ministers aren't really interested in drawing people. We're interested in keeping God in our service We're, we pray about, Lord, how would you have me steer the service next? Lord, what would you have me teach on next? Lord, how's that family doing? What sermon can I teach to kind of hone in on the Lord? Do I need to call them into my office or do I need to do a three week study on this subject? That's how real pastors think. Real pastors are worried about the sheep they're given, not the ones they haven't attracted yet. And furthermore, my Gospels tell me my focus is not to be attractional. My Gospels warn me that be careful when the world says all manner of good about you. So why is the church infatuated with this retarded term called attractional? We want to be attractional. How about you lift up Jesus Christ and he draws? It may seem like a nuance, but there's no nuance. Those two terms are miles apart in their philosophy and their pursuit. One is we magnify Jesus, and he draws who he wills. The other is let's chase gimmicks and be attractional. Let's pull the community and see why they don't want to come to church and then don't offend them. The other says, Jesus, what do you want me to teach on? Teach on eating my flesh and drinking my blood. Well, Lord, that didn't work so well for you. Yeah, it didn't, but I wasn't aiming to be attractional. Amen. I was aiming at being truthful. Amen. Lord, you lost everybody but the 12, and the one, that, one of those was demon-possessed. Yes, and it was a good place to purge my ministry. I was privy to a conversation. A great Pentecostal pastor with many decades of leadership secretly visited one of my friend's churches. My friend didn't know who he was, and afterwards, one of his congregation members told him, this famous, great preacher was in our congregation this morning, and so he figured out, got a hold of him, and this great Pentecostal preacher said, can we do lunch? So they did lunch, and he said, I want you to know I appreciate your church service the other day, and so my friend said, well, if I can ask you, sir, what are you doing at my church? He said, I had a Sunday off from my church, and I wanted to worship God. And he said, and I had heard about you, so I wanted to come in. And he said, and I want you to know I enjoyed everything about your service, and God really ministered to me. He met me in your church. So my friend said, well, sir, but your church, he said, I don't even know what we've become. I don't even know what we're doing anymore. This is a man who, at one point, I would have held in steam as a Holy Ghost Pentecostal. Not that Pentecost is where it's all at, but that's just our frame of reference. You really have to deny Christ a long way to get the Holy Spirit to quit showing up in your church, especially when you're Pentecostal and you're used to running and dancing and fire and Holy Ghost. And for this man, a great man, I still esteem him, for him to say, I had to leave my church so I could worship God. That's a man who realizes, I don't know how to do this anymore. I don't know how to get it back. Which also says, what's everybody at your church doing? We pastors, we can find God anywhere. We're great at making allegories out of any TV show you give us. We can find a principle anywhere. We're, just, we're always looking for the next sermon. We're ringing everything as a chamois We can watch an infomercial and get the gospel out of it because that's just what we do. For a man to have to leave his own church, he basically is admitting we have failed God and we have thousands of people there deceived. And so I want you to hear very clearly. There is a spirit in this nation that is stripping and leeching power and truth out of local churches. And if you're drawn to it, I would wonder how much you actually love Jesus. Churches that grow overnight in this nation, I would humbly tell you, are either cancers or tumors or weeds. Because the day that we're living in, when our nation doesn't even know how to squat or stand to pee, where men can have babies and women can have penises, this retarded nation, and you think you can build a church of 10,000? We have this delusion that God promised he would send into the earth, and it is here. And so what you need to make sure you do is you find God in his purest form, removed from filters, from marketing, from purple lights, bar, nightclub vibe, black this, chrome that, pizzazz this, smoke machine. There's no need for any of that if God showed up for 40 years in a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day and it was nothing but a tent, you don't need Cirque du Soleil in your pulpit to get people there. Because once you get them there, you got nothing to give them anyway. All we've done is gone to the world to see how the world's doing it and the world came to us seeing if we had any answers. We We were Titanic ships passing in the night. Instead of helping each other, The church didn't have any medicine to give. And the world said, we we got massive crowds, but they're all going to hell. So it's two lame people drowning, hanging on to each other for poor, for desperate life. So we got to be careful that the fight of the church is to stay pure, to stay clean, to stay holy. The fight of the church is to stay faithful to Jesus Christ no matter what the culture does no matter what the culture does, we stay true to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't need lights to get into worship. You don't need even just these lights to get into worship. You just need singing. We're all for instruments because the Bible doesn't condemn them, but you don't even need instruments to get into worship. You definitely don't need worshiptainment. You don't need countdown clocks. You don't need all these things that feed the hype of a perverse culture who's entertainment-driven and drunk on streaming. Thankfully, our technocratic overlords put apps on our phone that let us know what our screen time is each day so we can see how much time we spend worshiping the image. I think we'll have one in heaven and I'm not really sure anybody's clock except for someone in a prison cell in China is going to exceed their social media or smartphone usage. As far as seeking God, God time, FaceTime, God time, social media time, God time, Facebook, Bible book, Facebook. I think it's going to be a horrible day of reckoning when we realize we get, we spent more time every day on social media than we did in the Bible or prayer. Amen. All right. It's good preaching. You're awfully quiet and we didn't even have purple lights or smoke machine. It's not like I'm bashing us, but that lure is out there. And the reason it's popular is that it's less of a standard. It's easier. We were at dinner last night. I got to have a date with my wife, and we were at this nice restaurant, and the table sat down behind us. They were a little too close, so we kind of moved the table over, and they were just chatting. You know, well, The table beside us was a bunch of 85-year-old women at one of their birthday parties, and it was funny because somebody's phone went off, and they all ignored it like old women do in church services. God bless you old ladies and your cell phones that are turned up to like 90 dB because you're half deaf. And you're like, oh, it's mine. I'm not even getting it. Well, do you know how to reach down in there and just like shut it up because I'm on a date with my wife? And it isn't even one of the cool trendy ones. It's like one of those from the Nokia from 93. <laughs> Probably was a Nokia from 93 still. Anyway, so this table behind me, I, I kept hearing me use the word pastor and church and worship. So, so then I kind of have to disengaged from my wife. At one point I pulled the, uh, the, they brought us the dessert menu. So I was like, well, let me get some better light. So I was trying to cue it because they kept using these words, but I wasn't picking up the presence of God. And I think we've all been in situations where we heard the next table over talking about God with zeal and excitement. And you're like, oh man, those are my brothers. Those are my sisters. I wonder where they're going. I wonder where they're coming from. I wonder, you can even see it in the airports. You see missionary trips. You see a whole bunch of youth going to Mexico or Europe on a mission trip. And you can just feel God coming off them. They're excited. And this is their youth group. And uh, this was like sterile. So I really had to cue in a little bit. And the way they spoke of church, you could have taken out our church lingo and inserted business terms and it would have been identical. And so that chewed me in even more. So the last five minutes of our dinner, I was split. I think my wife's used to that anyway. She's not paying full attention. Because I was trying to troubleshoot it. It was bothering me. Because they're like, well, we heard about this church. And they quoted one of my friend's churches here in town. But they don't have a Saturday night service. And, and so then this, and then that. And then they begin to talk about, well, you know, if you can't have your worship up past 92 decibels, it's really not appropriate. And then, you know, this past, it was so stoic. You would have thought we were talking business transactions, actuary tables. You'd have thought this was a, you, you'd have thought we were about to go into some kind of business agreement and we were dealing with a boiler template of a contract. And like, well, we'll bring in this contractor and they'll do this, but you can't do that for less than this. And that's how they were discussing church. And I thought, this is really the condition of the American church now whether they're in town visiting or just moved here, they're looking for a church, but it had to meet certain criteria. And none of it was, I hope God's word is taught there. I hope the people worship passionately. I hope those folks know how to serve God. I hope it's an evangelistic, outgoing church. It was stoic, business-minded, formulaic. And I thought that is the American culture effectively leeching God out of his tabernacle. So we have a problem. And the church is to blame. And so what I want to look at here in Ephesians 4 is let us get back to what the church is about. The only problem with chasing entertainment is you have to chase the world to stay relevant. The only problem with chasing entertainment and chasing the the pizzazz and the sham wow and the, the emotion is that you always have to up it. And if you're always upping it, where will you stop? And don't you know the world is tired of streaming? And the world is tired of concerts. The world is looking for something more. And they're going to turn to the church, and they're, we're going to say, don't look at us. We were following you. Somebody needs to keep the fire going so that when the world decides to come in out of the wet, cold carnality, we have something to give them. That you and I have power on tap. We have faith ready to go. We are ready in season and out to deliver, to cast out, to set free, to fill with the anointing of oil of God and to lead them to Christ. If all we know is entertainment, if all we know is skinny jeans, if all we know is lights, if we don't have doctrine, if we don't have the power of God, if we don't have the Holy Ghost, what good are we? We're just a carnal hobby exploiting God's symbols for some shallow existence called preacher man. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. We're going to read a couple verses and slow down at verse 11. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Every Christian has a calling. King James translates it as vocation. It's what you live your life for. And we are warned and exhorted by the prisoner, which means, hey, I'm a prisoner. Why don't you be one too? You and I are in prison to our calling, which is to glorify God. Enough of the American dream. Enough of your pursuits. Enough of dreaming bigger dreams. Find the will of God and march. Sell tents along the way if you have to, but you better find the will of God. And if you've got little ones, you should be praying for that destiny today so they don't spend 15 years in college trying to figure out what their existence is for. Walk worthy of that because that's what you're called. With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, which means you have to be around each other. This wasn't written to the reclusive Christian that streams in his underwear. If Paul is saying long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, it, it, it infers that we're stuck together. And if I'm going to fulfill my calling, I've got to be around people that need long-suffering. Because you say, amen, because I've been suffering a long time working in bed babies with them. <laughs> yeah. You can't be a loner of a Christian, and you can't serve God from home alone. You're called out of private into a public arena. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's not necessary if you don't go to church. That's unnecessary if you don't fellowship with the saints. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, that works when you're rubbing elbows with each other in the body of Christ, when you're serving together, when you're worshiping together, when you're serving communion table together, when you're serving bed babies, little tots, mission kids together. That's when you've got to really endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, and you're not supposed to be an amputated pinky living in a jar of formaldehyde on somebody's dresser somewhere. <laughs> well, I stream... Well, I'm doing my utmost for his highest, and I'm doing Henry Blackaby's experience in God. You're part of a body, ding Do that on the private if you want, but you're supposed to be in the house of God. Christians without a local body are amputated and good for nothing. So quit being good for nothing. Start being good for something. It's all right if we look a little bit like Frankenstein and we come and stitch you in here. Make for a cool story later. And those are some pretty tough-looking stitches. It's better than being some little idiot living in a jar of formaldehyde streaming all your gospel. One spirit, even as you are called, called one body, called to one spirit, one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So we've each been given a measure of the gift of Christ, a different measure. The Greek word is metron. It's doled out differently, but that's not for you to sit at home in your jar of formaldehyde. And those giftings are in every local body. Now, one of the problems with the entertainment-driven church that looks like a nightclub with all of its accoutrements and all of its secularism is that those folks come to that church geared to be entertained. They don't come ready to be used in their grace. So you can build a massive Christian megaplex, but you'll never be able to tap into the graces that God gave the members in particular. When you're healthy, every member of your body works daily. When you are a healthy human being, not in bed all day, But a healthy human being, every member of your body is doing something every day. Your ears are hearing, your hands are grabbing, your elbows are extending, your shoulders are lifting, you're squatting, you're standing, you might run, your heart's working, all your livers and organs are working, you're you're eating, you're dieting, everything about you. When you're healthy, every member of your body functions. So what does it say about a local church that is 95% spectator? Is it healthy? It's not, is it? Can't possibly be. That's an invalid who's paralyzed from the waist down, and the head can blink twice and go, oh. Everything else is atrophying; Organs are slowly shutting down. We've got to have dialysis. We've got to have a pacemaker. We've got to have an iron lung breathing for us. But, but look at how big our body is. That's not a church. That's a little preacher man's ego trip. And yet to look at it in the hospital, you think, ugh, he can't even wipe his own rear end. He has to pee through a tube. He can't even salivate or eat his own food. He's on a feeding tube. He can't even breathe on his own. But Look at how big I am. It must be God. Um, Or getting ready for organ harvest. To take those organs to a body that can use them. And may God harvest organs out of churches all over the land and get those valuable members someplace where they can be used. The problem is when you get a church so big, you can't use everybody because it's too big. It's like storing unneeded fat. Why have it if you're not going to use it? Which is a really good question. Every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Therefore, he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? Christians really trip at the fact that Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth. Does that mean he went caving at his death? Does that mean he took a tour of Solomon's mines? What do you think it means to descend into the lower parts of the earth, especially when Isaiah says, hell from beneath will arise to meet you? There is a doctrine established multiple times in Scripture that Jesus went to hell. The question becomes, what is hell? Is it torments or is it the place of the departed? The answer is yes to both, but you do have to make a distinction. I just want you to know that the New Testament confirms that Jesus died and went to hell. It's where he preached to the captives. From there he led captivity captive and ascended on high. Folks really have a problem with that. And I don't understand why. If he became sin, does he become sin and go straight to heaven? Where do you get the keys of death and hell? Are those hanging on the key rack in heaven? I would think you have to go to where they are. That aside, he that descended is the same that also ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. So now let's get to the local church. And he gave some, because these are the gifts he gave unto men. He gave some apostles and some prophets and some entertainers and some jugglers. Oh, all right. Well, I was reading the New American Standard. (laughs) <laughs> ministry of electrician, ministry of entertainment, ministry, multimedia, pastor of multimedia. We're, we're honestly in the American church. We're just making up titles now because yes. they went to one year of Bible school and they're really good with IT. That's our pastor of IT because they wear skinny jeans, have a muffin top and play the guitar. That's our pastor of worship now. and see their new little cool wrist tattoo. Notice how they always have to lead worship in a short-sleeved shirt? Because yeah, right. they have to show off their ego because it's not about Jesus. Right. Honestly, some of these worship sets, if you were to just screen capture it from their stream and just show it, say, tell me, worship service or coffee bar? Worship service or evening at the improv? Worship service or America's Got Talent? Worship service, or did we just borrow this from the world? Worship service or Bridgestone Arena after this weekend's concert? But when you walked into the desert and you saw a pillar of fire come down on a sheer white tabernacle tent, you said, something different is happening there. And I don't know who those people are, but they sure seem to be gathered around something I've never seen before. What strange thing is this? Maybe they would be drawn to ask a reason for those people's hope. So he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. These are what we collectively call the five-fold ministry gifts. These are the gifts Jesus Christ gave as the head of the church to the church to make the church better. We call these officers, we call them ministers. There are only five. There's no such thing as the intercessor. That's not a ministry gift. Nor the interpretive dancer. Nor even the musician. Those are not ministry gifts of the same order as the fivefold minister. All right, we clear on that? Because I want you to be very, very clear. We don't want to be confused on this thing. Their work is important for the perfecting of the saints... The work of these five ministry gifts perfects the saints. There's no other gift that can do that. Now, other gifts, other ministers, other, and I'm using those terms loosely now, there's exhorters, there are those that might lead us in worship. They do a lot of things for us, but they don't mature us. The word perfect means to mature and equip. They might lead us into God's presence. We might even have like a financial advisor, uh, we might have someone who can come in and encourage us on a few things and organize some things, but they're not ministry gifts set in the body of Christ to perfect us. And This is critical because the bulk of the heavy lifting for the preparation of the body of Christ is done by the fivefold ministry gifts. Now, sadly enough, a lot of denominations believe that most of these guys are done away with. Most of the apostle and the prophet, they don't believe in them anymore. So all they believe in is the pastor and the evangelist and the teacher. And I get it. Teachers, we need teachers and evangelists. You can't win the world. It is curious that the pastor is the most widespread office in the land and yet the least mentioned in the New Testament. But they don't ever explain that. I have an explanation. We don't have time for it. The apostles and prophets are mentioned more than anybody in the New Testament, but those are the ones that get cut off the chopping block. They're the ones that be let go first by denominationalists. You've got to understand that there are five types of New Testament apostles. And so when we start saying the apostles are done away with, you've got to be very careful because you might tread into heresy. And furthermore, there's no scripture that says the apostles are done away with. But the first apostle is Jesus Christ, the apostle of our faith. So if apostles are done away with, you just lost Jesus. Then you have the twelve apostles of the Lamb, of whom Matthias replaced Judas. Their names are written on the foundation of the heavenly Jerusalem. So there's your second classification. Then you have what are called the uh, foundational apostles. Those are the ones that wrote scripture. But aside from those three there, the New Testament speaks of about 20 other apostles that were operating in the New Testament that were not foundational apostles. I mean, you think most folks could could probably name Paul, Jude, Peter, James, and John. That's all the apostles they can name. But beyond the 12, and Paul, and Jude, and James, those that wrote the New Testament, there are 20 other plus apostles mentioned throughout the scriptures. And then you have finally what we would call the apostles that still operate today. And these guys are mostly, and women, are pioneers. They pioneer work. They don't just start churches. They might help start Bible schools. They don't stay very long in any one place. They are pioneers. We still need those. They're not just missionaries. You can be an apostle and have churches under you in the States, and you've started 15 churches in the States. That's quite the apostolic work. I've also learned you don't have to recognize that you're an apostle to be one. You just do the work of one. I'd rather do the work than have the title. Typically, when your business card has seven ministry light labels on it, you're probably none of those. The one, the one that you should have is immature and insecure. You know, the first right reverend, apostle, prophet, bishop, uh, teacher, first lady, Alexandria. Yeah, you're like probably just insecure and run your home. That's been my experience you don't need titles. Then you have the prophets, not the same as Old Testament prophets. We have foundational New Testament prophets who wrote scripture. Like Paul, he was considered a prophet. And John the Revelator wrote the whole revelation. That's prophetic. Uh, He makes him a prophet. Then you also have other prophets like Agabus who didn't write scripture, but were operating in the New Testament days. And then you still have prophets today who like to point the finger at sin and keep the body of Christ in line. That, of course, then brings us to evangelists, which everybody understands what they do. They win the loss and encourage the body of Christ to win the loss. And then you have pastors, the one who takes care of the sheep. We're the guy that smells like sheep because poima in the Greek means shepherd. We smell like sheep. Now even to the Jews, even the Jews despised shepherds. In the Talmud and the Mishnah and the Midrash, they condemned shepherds. Shepherds were not worthy witnesses in legal cases. Because they said either they're not around people or they probably robbed somebody. Jews have no respect for shepherds in in biblical times. Which is why the angels appearing to the shepherds at the birth of Christ was so significant. Because they were the bottom of the totem pole culturally. They smelled. They were always off doing something out in no man's land taking care of the sheep. We're still that way today. We're still despised. Some of us have earned the, uh, the despising because we've been perverts embezzled money, slept with secretaries, worship leaders, or somebody else's wife. But uh, I don't know, maybe just pastors are trying to be like politicians in Hollywood. But even those of us that are clean and pure, we're still despised and looked down upon because nobody seems to appreciate the fact that we walk behind you and we clean up your mess and save you from stuff you're too stupid to realize you're just doing to yourself. And then you have teachers and teachers, what they do is they bring sound doctrine and sometimes some of these ministry gifts don't get along because we think our gifting is the most important. The evangelist just wants to win the lost, and he yells at the pastor, You don't win enough lost! And we look at the evangelist and say, And your doctrine is horrible, and you don't care about the people who live here. And the prophet says, You're all wrong! And the teacher says, Yes, but so is your doctrine. And the apostle says, Look, I'm just here for a couple months, and then I'm out of here. Leave me alone. <laughs> And then the pastor says, and you guys all dump on me. And when you leave me, I got to clean these sheep up. But there's something interesting to be noted. And here's what's critical. This is the only scripture that establishes what can perfect you as a saint. So last year, I was out at a youth conference. I was the keynote speaker at a youth conference. And I don't really think much about it. I'm I'm honored to be there. I was really excited. Probably one of the best couple of services I've ever had. Great conference, and um, there were some uh, great ministers that were there. They were kind of over the youth. They brought their youth from another state. They had been missionaries for a long time in another country and were very, very established ministers, probably in the ministry 35 years. And they made an observation that I totally missed. But then again, I'm not in the youth ministry circuit. I'm not in the youth conference circuit, but they have been. And so uh, the one pastor said, Pastor Chris, he said, there's just something, he said, no, what'd he say? He said, this, this clears it up for me. It, this just really brings clarity. He said, there is such a marked difference when a ministry gift teaches than when anybody else does. And he said, it's not fair that we keep bringing in non-ministry gifts to youth conferences. He said, these youth deserve ministry gifts. So what he was doing is making an observation that there's a difference in authority. There's a difference in anointing. There's a difference in the ability to adjust and impart when it's coming from a five-fold ministry gift as opposed to maybe this church is a smaller church and they just grab the 25-year-old who loves the Bible. Like, we need a youth leader, you're him. Or some motivational speaker. Now, here's, here's what we have to be careful of as we chase conferences. Are there ministry gifts speaking there or just speakers speaking there? Why would you spend time and money to travel someplace to sit under a non-ministry gift? Because you're not going to be perfected. You're going to be educated. You might be exhorted. But you're not going to be perfected. Because according to Jesus Christ and the Scriptures... Only the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher have the ability to do that supernatural work in you. I'm all for education. I'm all for exhortation. But there's a difference when the ministry gift stands in front of you and ministers in their office. All speakers don't have an office. But all officers speak. So why chase a conference when nobody there is a ministry gift? Our megachurches have built huge conferences and most of the people who speak are not ministry gifts. They are planners. They are governments and administrators. They are marketeers. They are systems management experts. They're growth gurus and they are perhaps life coaches. I'm not traveling to sit at the feet of a life coach. I have a life coach. His name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I don't have to buy his New York Times bestseller. I have like 100 copies of him. And I have a lot of it committed to memory already. Plus, furthermore, all the life coach is going to do is remix up his book, reissue it in three years, and become a New York Times bestseller again. And if you know his first book, you've read his second one already. Because it's a racket. Ministry gifts perfect the saints. And this is why we need to be in a local church. Because you don't find ministry gifts at the coffee bar. And you don't find ministry gifts at the theater. And you don't find ministry gifts in the park. You don't find ministry gifts in the Bible study at home. You find ministry gifts in the local church because that's where the Lord Jesus Christ, their boss, sends them on circuits to do their work. Because this is where, if my job is to perfect the saints, I go where the saints assemble. And if you're not seated under ministry gifts, you're not being perfected. So think about every year... Every year Josh sits under a ministry gift and every year Elizabeth doesn't sit under a ministry gift, their growth disparity increases exponentially. Every year Elizabeth sits at home and streams church and every year that Josh comes to church, their growth disparity increases again because he's sitting under a ministry gift that will perfect him and she's streaming a TED Talker. They are given for the perfecting of the saints. That is... To, to equip, to furnish, to complete, for the body of Christ to do the work of the ministry. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry. For the work of the ministry. So here's the second thing ministers do fivefold ministers, honest to goodness, called ministers. When we perfect you, one of, the, one of the residues it leaves in you is not, oh, I feel so good. It's, oh, there's a work to do. Oh yeah, he loves me, he loves me. That's great, all right. I could have told you that in the lobby. When I'm done with you, you're convicted and want to do better. When I'm done with you, there's something in you that wasn't in there before and there's something gone that was there before. When the ministry gift's done with you, there's a work ethic. There's a change, there's a muscle. Well, I don't know, pastor. You're done with me and I don't want to work. Well, that's because I'm not your ministry gift. I mean, your body's here, but you're not. Your body's here, but you're dozing off. Your body's here, but you're just checking a religious box. When I'm done with those, when any apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher is done with those who've come to be perfected by the ministry gift, they leave changed. Not just encouraged, not just exhorted, not just, oh, I'm so wonderful and I just am so me. I'm just happy to be me. No, they're like, I don't have time for that selfish, narcissistic American drivel. There's a kingdom to build, and if you're just chasing conferences trying to find out how wonderful you are, you're not fit for the kingdom. There's a work to be done. The second purpose of a ministry gift is to equip you for work. And if you're not working, then you don't really have a ministry gift in your life. The evangelist comes, and you just want to go evangelize somebody. The teacher comes, and you want to go get scripture and figure out, why, how did you not see that before? The prophet comes and you just want to get to the altar and repent and not live that way anymore. The pastor comes and you're just running everywhere with frantic wool falling out, going trying to figure out where to go next. There's a work that's done in you when a ministry gift. Otherwise, most of this junk with purple lights and a hundred grand and lighting, that's a Ted talk. And it's a waste of any genuine ministry gift that might be in the pulpit. And it, it's the result of what that guy said. I don't even know what my church has become. I came to your church to meet with God. Well, I'll tell you what you do. Burn it to the ground and start from scratch. I told you, a friend of mine of a Pentecostal denomination, one of his mentors, one of his mentors came to him and said, uh, his church had grown to about 600 and He realized that at 600, his, he was, I think in his heart, I can't remember the story, I just told it a couple weeks ago, he was criticizing one of these seeker-friendly purple light churches that looks like a bar. Everything, everybody on stage looks like they're running security at a Def Leppard concert or something. I mean, nothing, you look up there, nothing says holy, nothing says sacred, nothing says distinct from the world, nothing says you just passed the outer court. You walk into it, and it looks like you sold tickets to get there. I mean, when you come into a church, it shouldn't look like you had to buy reserved seating to be there. Because if, if it looks like that, it's not a sanctuary. So he said his, his mentor was in his 70s, I think, and he realized, my church has become that which I despise. And it's secular. And so he, he wept And the Lord was dealing with him about it, and his wife, he was crying. His wife said, what's wrong? He said, I I have steered our church the wrong way. And she said, I've been wanting to tell you that for years. And he said, well, if that's the case, then I'll just resign it. And so he purposed in his heart to resign his church because he realized he'd made a mess of it. But he said, he told my friend, if ever God spoke to me, he spoke to me in that moment nearly audibly and said, you made the mess, you clean it up. So I told you this story a few weeks ago. 600 member church, blowing and going. Stands up in the altar Sunday morning and says, "We're going to make some changes." And all he did, according to my friend, was declare what their doctrinal statement was and what they were about and what they were going to do. Didn't even preach it. Didn't even try to adjust anything. Just made declarations and lost 200 people that week. Just by saying, "This is our statement of faith." Well, what had you been doing before? hiding your statement of faith and then over the next three or four weeks he whittled it down to 200 people and his youth leader who he had raised up uh, said this is what I'm doing I want you to stay with me he says I don't think you're right and he left him and that youth leader now has a church of 12,000 so think about this just hear, hear the anecdotal story true story not far from here one guy has an encounter with God, reads a doctrinal statement, shaves a third off of his church reading a doctrinal statement. Pentecostal doctrine. Then, over the next two weeks after that, loses another 200, gets down to 200 people. And the youth leader that he had discipled in this compromised ethic goes and starts his own church in the same town and runs 12,000. Where's God? God shows up with one man and says, you made the mess, you clean it up. He cleans it up, and it's like Gideon's army. And the other guy doesn't hear from God. The other guy is trained up in secularism. He grows a church of 12,000. But is he perfecting those? Are they working the ministry, or are they just doing social do-goodism? The Lord Jesus didn't die for a church to pick up trash. If he's going to tell you to pick up trash, it's because somebody's about to be born again. But, you know, picking up trash looks better on social media than going door to door and knocking. And by the way, we don't post our evangelism online because I'm not narcissistic or insecure. In fact, we don't even have a Facebook presence or an Instagram presence. They told me I couldn't do ministry without being on social media. We have a YouTube channel because we stream and it's free for now. That's our only social media presence to stream. For the work of the ministry, verse 12, for the edifying of the body of Christ. If saints aren't perfected, the saints don't do the work. If the saints don't do the work, the body's not edified. So think about this church where nobody's being edified. And if nobody's being edified, then the whole of the body lacks, excuse me, nobody's doing the work, then the whole of the body lacks to be edified. But let's see what else the work of the ministry gifts do. Verse 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith. So we can't have a unified faith if we're not sitting under ministry gifts who are perfecting us and changing us. And of the knowledge of the Son of God. Ministry gifts bring us knowledge of the Son of God. Yes, but I can study the Bible on my own. Yes, you can. But there's stuff you'll never know without ministry gifts. Absolute stuff you will never know. You will not be able to see it because you're not anointed to see it. And to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, you cannot come into the maturity of the fullness of Christ without a ministry gift in your life. That social media prophetess cannot grow you. The TED talking preacher cannot grow you. Streaming Joel Osteen cannot grow you. You have to be in the house of God in that sanctuary set apart where there's a Sabbath service taking place. By Sabbath, we mean something different than everything we do all week. Everything we do in these four walls here is different than what we do all week. We come here dressed differently. We come here, we listen to music differently. We participate in the music. We come here, we give away money to a basket. That's different. We sit down and do our best to stay awake and take notes so that we can be changed. We don't run around in here like hooligans. We don't eat food in here. We're not drinking in here. I mean, if you can't go without food or water for two hours, what is your problem? Really? We make this holy and sacred. Once you get out there, we sell cupcakes and brownies and ho-hos and ding-dongs in the foyer, but that's not the sanctuary. I don't know why the church is trying to just like make God so cool. Everybody wants them. The things of God are sacred, pure, and holy, and they ought to be set apart. There ought to be such a distinction between what the church is doing and what the world is doing that it's stark, as stark as a snow white sheet in the desert of the Sinai. But we don't have that today. We got churches flying rainbow flags. We got churches with like pop, lock, and disco shows in the pulpit. I mean, it's retarded. It's. It's an abomination, and we wonder where God is. Well, he only goes where he's revered. And the less you revere him, the less he shows up. Verse 14 that we henceforth be no more children. Big churches keep a nursery. I got a friend of mine, great guy, holy, clean, spirit filled. I've been praying for him, and he finally realized I'm going to have to grow this church up. I just can't keep an adult nursery. And I want to tell him, well, yeah, you're a ministry gift. Your job is to grow people up. But he also knows if he raises a standard, he's going to lose some people, because that's what happens when you raise standards. A high church with a high standard grows people up, and those that don't want to grow up leave, because they can't handle it. They're too embarrassed to come anymore. They come in late. They leave early, because they're ashamed, because they don't serve God according to God's standard. And it's a good spiritual pressure. (laughs) that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive but speaking the truth in love may grow up when we speak the truth in love as ministers we grow people up we grow people up your job ought to be to grow up your hunger ought to be I want to grow up I don't want to be immature anymore I got to learn how to master the clock you ought to at least try to be on time for Sunday school you should ought to be able to master loving your wife, loving your husband, loving your kids. We ought to be able to grow up. The calling is to grow up. Be equipped, do work, edify, grow up. Be equipped, do work, edify, grow up. That's the simplicity of the church. That's a hard sell. So we'd rather do magic shows and have entertainment. We'd rather take all the secular filthy songs, Cardi B, Beyonce, whatever, rework some lyrics in there so we can like just flex our entertainment muscle. Take a secular song, because there's a church in Florida that does this. They open every service with some whiz-bang, showbiz concert where they take some popular secular song and they have to get all the dirty words and all the sexual innuendo out and rework it, just really because that's what the worship team is listening to in private. They want to do it. They want to do a cover of it, but they know it won't fly if it's talking about masturbation, homosexuality, and sleeping around. So they just kind of rework it. Try to preach after that. Try to have an altar call. Try to call for the lost. Try to lay hands on the sick. You won't have it. When your church looks like a dinner theater in Dollywood or Pigeon Forge, you've lost touch with the gospel. Speaking the truth in love may grow up into him and all things, which is the head, even Christ. Don't you know, if Jesus is the head and his body is this invalid on this table, Jesus is speaking to every member of his body, saying, work in Jesus' name. Work almost like you would be if you were in an accident learning to reuse your body again. I command you to breathe. At least that's what our doctrine teaches us to do. I command you, wiggle those toes. Toes you wiggle in Jesus' name. Breathe move those arms, move it, hold it, hold it, pain, shut up, you would be commanding every member to get back to the work you know to do. That's what the Lord Jesus is doing to his body and the earth today. He is the head. He's looking at an invalid of a body called the church, commanding it to do what he anointed it to do, wondering why it's so resistant, wondering why it secretly wants to amputate itself and crawl into the next room where it can be a part of Cirque du Soleil or a Vegas show with showgirls. But Jesus said, you know what? If my hand offends you, I'll do you a favor. I'll cut it off myself. And I wonder how many churches are amputated this morning and don't even realize it. For whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies this comes back to the necessity of the local church. We're not here to be entertained. We're not here to drink coffee. We're not here to be encouraged with laughing stories every service. We're here to be compacted and fitly joined together. We're here to be members one of another. We're here to receive what each other has, to encourage one another, to come together, to be retrained on a Sunday morning, to be re-energized on a Sunday morning, to go out and win the lost Monday through Saturday, and then bring those folks back. That's what we're here for. We're compacted. When you're that dismembered body in the Jar of formaldehyde, these verses aren't for you anymore. because you' you have a joint, you have a supply, but you don't want to come be a part of us. Think of a church of twenty thousand people. Do you really think there's any joints doing any supplying? They recognize it, the big guys, and I know, well, God bless them, because now they have multiple campuses, and some of their multiple campuses are even five and eight thousand. And then they have to have 20 and 30 pastors on staff so that the ratio is still about 1 to 300. So why not just have 20 different churches? We're all fit, joined, compacted by that which every joint supplies according to effectual working in the measure. That's the same word from verse 7. You and I have a measure in us. And when we come together, when we come to a local church, when we live around the local tabernacle like the Israelites did, we're able to use that measure God has given us to help one another. The effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. We're called to help each other increase. We're called to live our lives together, to serve together. We're not called to be back row Christians. We're not called to come in late and leave early. We're not called to come once every two weeks or once a month. When you're really a member of the body of Christ, should the Lord send you somewhere else, should the Lord send you to a college, you're going to find a church before you get anything else. Because you realize, I'm an amputated hand right now. I'm only good on the ice for so long. Please attach within the next 24 to 36 hours. Otherwise, you become some kind of monkey paw hanging on somebody's rearview mirror. And it's the devil's rearview mirror. (laughs) We're supposed to make increase of each other in love. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. It would almost fit today's modern church pattern. The vanity of the Gentiles. When you walk into a church, when the tabernacle was the first example, and then Solomon's temple was the next example, then synagogues in Babylon, and then Zerubbabel's temple, but then became Herod's temple as your final examples leading up to Christ. When you think about how the church was intended to be with the distinction even during the medieval period and the rise of Catholicism, they laid out their churches to pattern the tabernacle. And you had the outer court, the inner court, and the Holy of Holies, all to honor God. And they built cathedrals that have stood a thousand years in Europe to make a distinction between what went on there and what went on at the cobbler's shop or the saloon or the tavern, or the whorehouse. And in those days, the church was often the center of their little village, patterned after the tabernacle. And now, if you're in a church, and you're not really sure at what point you entered the sanctuary and at what point you left, you should probably find a better church. If the pastor's more uh, concerned with your feelings and your salvation, you should find a better church. If he has more coffee flavors and fruit of the spirit flavors, you should find a better church. If the hottest thing in his church is his espresso bar, and not his sermon, find a better church. Because we're, we're, we're in the last days. One of the biggest pastors in the country today, runs about 40,000, has all but publicly announced he's gay-affirming. And people still flock to his conferences to learn how to grow a church. And he has the light shows and the jeans and the trendy this. And he doesn't have gospel anymore. He mocks our scripture now when he teaches. And he quotes scriptures and he says, I don't like that scripture. It's a clobber verse. God clobbers people that verse and I don't like it. Right, well, why don't you just sit down and hurry up and go to hell instead of deceiving people? You and I have got to know the God that we serve. You've got to be conver- convinced of those scriptures yourself. You have to have a walk with God for yourself. You need to worship your God on your own. You need to come to the house of God clean, holy. And if you're in a mess, we'll clean you up and get you holy again. Feel free to repent. But you've got to be scrapping every day for your faith. The Bible says that we're to contend for the faith that was once delivered. Because we're living in the day and era where the grace of God is being turned into lasciviousness. And God's people love it so because it's just easier. There's no pressure put on me. There's no confrontation put on me. And there's no medicine put in you. There's no help put upon your life. There's no anointing there. So yes, you check your box and get one degree cooler for God. We've got to be cleaner and holier. The ministry gifts are given to perfect us. It's why I might maybe five or six times a year, I might let non-ministry gifts minister. There's always room for testimony service. Here in a couple of weeks, we'll have a friend of ours from California who's not a 5 ministry, but he's a tremendous Bible scholar. We'll let him come and teach us because he's a Bible scholar, but he's not a ministry gift. So we will be encouraged. We will be edified. We will be acknowledged in, and educated, but we will not be perfected. And that's all right, we'll, but I'm only going to let him pe- preach one sermon because I don't want to destroy them. Why would you chase conferences that don't have ministry gifts? Because you're not being perfected. And the church has learned that when ministers perfect, you lose people. (laughs) When ministers do their thing, you always cut people because that's what the gospel does. And so we've learned as preachers how to dial back the gospel standard to pet our ego and swell our numbers. Every pastor wrestles with this. Every pastor deals with it. Listen to me as a pastor. We know how to grow our church to pad our insecurity. Except I don't hate Jesus enough to do it. And the Holy Spirit just happens to be more real to me than a bunch of faces looking at me. All right, let me let me cheer you up a little bit. I look at you and you guys are like stars. Some of you twinkle. You blink a few times. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. There's. It's getting longer. You're like my son in the back seat on a road trip. Here we go. Here we go. Those blinks are getting longer. There goes that nod. Just and Maybe I'll come up with the Twinkle Twinkle Little Sheep Award. Maybe we'll get some lights. Maybe we'll get a drone. Ben, let's get a drone with a little light. We can just fly it over, and I'll say, uh, seat 37. A7. Seven. Let's give them the Twinkle Twinkle Little Sheep Award. We don't really have seats numbered because we don't care. But you guys are like little stars. So bright and shiny and twinkling. Some of you in times past have been shooting stars. You're here for a service and you're gone again. Or you shoot in, you shoot out. And whether you come back tonight, I don't know. At least Haley's comet and the hell bop comment, at least we can predict when they're going to show up again. Some of you, we can't. Some of you missed last Sunday night's service, and I'm telling you, it was one of the best services we've had in 10 years. And what were you doing? Nothing the Upper Cumberland could have coughed up on you was worth missing it. Amen. Amen. (sighs) Twinkle, twinkle. Little star. Let us pray.